Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So, uh, last time I was talking about the attributes of memory, how it has ac- uh, acquisition, which is basically the learning part, I guess you'd say. And then representation, and I think I mentioned representation doesn't have to be a picture, per se. Um, it's just how something is represented in memory, just how it's... And I don't, I'm, not, I'm not talking necessarily about something physiological. I mean, it has to, at some level, be physiological. No argument there. But I'm not talking about how it's represented directly in the nervous system. If you took brain and behavior, you, we talked about in that class how uh, vision works, and we actually know how representations of the real world are coded in your occipital lobe. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'll probably talk a little bit about that kind of stuff. Um, but it, really, I'm talking about it mechanistically. So, just like how in learning we can talk about, and those guys that learning know about, you know, uh, different sort of theories of, of, of learning and how for them information is represented. It doesn't have to be a picture. It could just be the way something is almost stored. Representation is something that if I, I can just do a simple transformation on it, and I can decode it and get reality back. If that makes sense. Just like if I look at your at this Google spreadsheet of all your grades. I can it gives me a final grade. It just gives me a total at the end. But if I want, I can look at the formula, do everything backwards, and get back all your grades and all your tests. So see, that's just the representation. You see what I'm saying? So it doesn't have to be a picture, even though that word makes you think of picture. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, James talked about the direct experience being primary memory. In other words, what we might call short-term, or today you typically use the term working memory. Um, and then all everything else is secondary memory, and James said that, and we still divide memory into those two types of memory today. We talk about primary and secondary memory. And I mentioned how you ought to really go try to read some James sometime for your psych student. It's really nice to read. Um, Herman Ebbinghaus, who we'll talk more about today when we get into the history stuff, and I've got a couple links in the CMS about Ebbinghaus. He talked about how there were three different kinds of retrieval. He was probably the first person to study memory scientifically. Right? He wasn't just sitting around and thinking about how his memory might work, which in essence is what James was doing, except he got it right. Though James did rely on Epicus's data a lot, too. He did some experiments. And he said, we recollect the past intentionally. So if I say to you, as I did at the beginning, as I do at the beginning of almost every class, is this where we were last time? You could look it up, or you could say, yeah, I remember seeing that. You're doing that on purpose. It's got a it's got intention behind it, if you want to say that. There's also unintentional remembering. Um, things just come to mind. You weren't doing it on purpose. You were trying to recall something, but you just did. You know how that happens? Like, suddenly, literally, and I'm not making this up, I just thought about my first bike. When and when. I don't know why, but I got it when I was six, and my dad got a Canadian tire, and it all had metric nuts, and you got to remember, this was 1970, my dad didn't have any metric wrenches. So, and it was made in Poland, which was an odd thing. 
1970. We didn't trail up with the Eastern Bloc. He was screaming about communists and their damn metric system. But my dad wasn't like that, but he had to scream about something. That was unintentional. I didn't mean to think about my kind of cool Polish bike. We can also show up without awareness. Now, I was aware that I thought about my bike. But I know how to read. That's got to be memory. I learned how to read. I'm not aware that I'm reading. It just happens. Right? I think, I would argue that, in fact, that's probably the most, that most of the processing we do, I think I said this last time, isn't with awareness. This is what makes sending memory sometimes kind of difficult, because I can ask you to recall a list of words. That's simple. And you're going to try to recall them, and that's intentional, and we're going to stop that episodic memory. Um, no problem, we can do that. But how am I going to study how you read? That's harder. And of course, that's a whole line of research that people do, and that's more along the lines of the cognition class that Laurie teaches. We still use distinctions like this today. So Ebbinghaus, as well as, well as James, these guys were getting stuff right. Uh, Ebbinghaus, by doing experiments, James, by reading Ebbinghaus and reading a few other things, we've got to understand it's 1890, experimental psychology starts in 1879. James was building it out of whole cloth. You've got to be impressed with William James. And, I mean, not to downplay Herman Ebbinghaus. Other attributes of memory, it can be reconstructive. In fact, it is almost always reconstructive, except if it's on exactly what we're talking about right now. Yeah. Um, I was listening to CBC a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about memory. Mm -hmm. And um, the gentleman that was talking about it said that when we retrieve a memory, yeah. um, it'll change a little bit. Oh, yeah. So every time we retrieve, it changes. I think, in fact, I believe I heard that same thing. Yeah. Okay. And that's true. Because think about this. When you recall, Your, I don't know, let's pick some. Your first day of university, that's something you can probably all remember. At the time, you had, say, certain feelings, emotions. You probably remember those, actually. Um, they tend to stick pretty well. Probably a little fear, probably a little excitement. Um, you might remember getting your first test back and being shocked at how old the grade was because you weren't in high school anymore. Uh, Right here. First lab report you wrote in psychology, 58. Thinking about that example, I remember thinking, I can think back now to that, to getting that lab report back and going to the TA and asking, what did I do wrong? I, I just don't know. This I thought, but what with the ID? She explained it to me. And I remember her saying to me, it was on the Stroop effect, and she said, now the two means are different. I said, yeah, I got that. She said, and we did this statistical test. You don't have to worry about the, the statistical test, but it shows that they're different. So, okay, I got that. She said, what do these, these numbers mean? I said, it says that a standard deviation. She said, what does that mean? And I now 
swear that I defined standard deviation for her. There is not a chance in hell that I did that. Because we didn't know what it was. I know I didn't say sum of the square deviations divided by the number of subjects minus one and square root of the whole thing. I know I didn't say that. I know I didn't say it's kind of like how spread out something is and it's in the same units, but that's what's in my head. I know I didn't say that. I know I fumbled around on it. some numbers, got stuff with the thing, what have you, if you will. <laughs> uh, I know I must have said something stupid because I didn't know what I was talking about. And I remember her trying to explain it to me, and I remember her frustration, actually. She was a master student. She never T8 before, and suddenly she's got smart-ass broadback going, well, this seems wrong. I don't know. But I have this memory now where I know what standard deviation is. I can't get that out of my head now. It's locked in. I know what standard deviation is. My memory's changed. I remember the 1972 goal, Paul Henderson scored the goal to beat the Russians. I remember it like it was yesterday. Flashbulb memories, we'll talk. And we were we all went down to the gym in my school, Crest Haven Public School in Toronto, and we got to watch the game. And it started at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, because it was in the Soviet Union, so their game would start at 7 o'clock their time, so six hours, so it was 1 o'clock. And it was game seven, game eight. And I remember us falling behind. And I remember Paul Henderson scoring the goal. And if you're of a certain age, you just ask someone, where were you when the goal was scored? And people know. And I remember Paul Henderson scoring with 38 seconds left. And he lost Zito and he got one away. And then I remember cheering. And I remember hugging a little girl beside me. And I was in grade two, you know, how little girls in grade two, because, you know, cooties. So, unless you have supersonic cootie power written on your hand, then you're fine. But I hugged a little girl, which just to show you the emotion of the moment, a little boy hugging a little girl in grade two, that doesn't happen, right? Because girls are new. The funny thing is, the little girl I remember hugging, I didn't know at the time. And I remember hugging her, I, very clearly, I remember I was hugging a little girl named Maria Pistacos. And why do I remember that? Because, you know, and why do I know it can't be her? Because Maria lived in Sudbury. And I was living in Toronto. And I didn't move to Sudbury until 1973. But she was the first little girl I was friends with that I remember. She lived across the street. But somehow she's now in my memory. She's intruded into my memory of the goal. Why? Well, my memory's made a good guess. Well, maybe I'm the little girl. The little girl you were friends with. Well, it's probably Maria. We'll put Maria in there. And I mean, I really do remember hugging Maria, and there's no, it's not a, it's impossible. It's impossible it was her. Yet, my memory has reconstructed that event. It's wrong. I bet if I took a polygraph, which as you probably know are quite unreliable, and they said, who sat beside you when watching the game in 1970? So I'd say, I don't know, there's a little boy beside me on the right, and on the left is Maria Kostakos. And it wouldn't do anything. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Sorry. No, that's okay. No, that's another William James expression. Wouldn't Stalin's 
stuff like that when your memory fills in the blanks? Is it because there is a blank? So and because your brain's not making sense of the information you have, it's got to put stuff in there so it makes a sense? Well, I think in some respects that's true. I mean, I think that um, not even worrying about the physiological aspect, just thinking about the fact that, you know, stuff just decays over time. Who knows why, but it decays over time. And if it does, why not fill it in with sensible guesses? Right? And a very sensible guess, in this case, was that it was that little girl Maria, who I later, by the way, ran into at university, and I hadn't seen her in 10 years. Did you have her then? Eight years. <laughs> no, well, yeah, we did, because we hadn't seen each other. It's like, yay, it's you! Remember, we went to school together in Sudbury. I was going to Western, and she had moved down to London to go to school. And she was, because it was 1985, Dressed up like a young woman in 1985. You know, the way people dressed then. No, she didn't have the big hair. No, sort of cool. There was the people that liked Journey, and there were people that liked Echo and the Bunny. So it's more than that. I used to wear the long ride overcoat in a beret, a motorcycle that's up to here, which came on before it was the 1990s, and it was the style at the time. Oh, and I had my hair in a ponytail. Like a very head in a brain with a black velvet bow. But now, in that memory, she's wearing those clothes from the 1980s. She's dressed up like a 1980s woman in 1972, and she wasn't even there. See, so my brain, see, my, my memory's even filling in other details. They're wrong. I mean, they, they're so wrong. Because in my memory now, she's got earrings on. Big kind of dangly earrings. Sitting there in big dangly earrings, and she wasn't even there. <laughs> so it's you're right, it's your memory making a guess, and it's a good guess. And usually your memory makes good guesses. But you gotta remember, oftentimes it's making a guess. And this is why Paul Dupuy will tell you about this uh, ad nauseum ad infinitum, that eyewitness testimony is horrible. Because it it's memory is a reconstructive process. It is not a digital video recorder. It is not your iPhone making uh, recordings. It is making guesses. You can both believe you're right. One of you has to be wrong. Two of my friends, former colleagues back at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Les Cake and Roy Hostetter, have an argument. Oh, three of them, I'm sorry, and Tom Daniels. They all argued the same thing. They all got on a plane once, flying from Deer Lake to Halifax. Fine. Deer Lake's near the corner. <coughs> and there had been a WWE event in Cornerbrook the night before, so it was full of wrestlers. And famous wrestlers. Like, you know. And they all think they sat beside Hulk Hogan. And one of them must have but they can't involve it's a freaking dash eight. There is one seat that sits beside the other seat. But they all claim they sat beside it. And if they were here right now, the excellent argument that would ensue, and they would all have these, no, I remember seeing this, I remember seeing this. No, you were across that way, I was sitting beside it. None of them know. One of them is probably right. But two of them must be, by definition, wrong. Their memories, however, have all reconstructed it such that they all believe they all sat there. So you've got to remember that about your memory. 
It's reconstructed. And this is why you can have arguments with people. And it's not that you've been sitting, you know, you're at a party, you were all hammered, and you kind of all half remember stuff. I'm talking about someone remembering something somebody says a week ago, and you all argue about it, and it's not that anybody's trying to misrepresent anything. What could be? Maybe your friends are just liars. But typically, it's because everybody's trying to reconstruct stuff. And unless you've recorded it, you just don't know the answer. Memory is a multi-dimensional thing. Okay. In other words, it has many parts. There may be different systems. In fact, I would go, I don't know, this isn't controversial. There are almost certainly many different systems or modules, if you want to use that expression. Um, but it, it can be about everything from knowing how to throw a baseball to knowing what a baseball is. So it's multi-dimensional. There are many forms, everything from knowing the capital of Vietnam, which for some reason for years has been our running example, to knowing how to ride a bike, to knowing what you had for breakfast, which is separate from knowing what breakfast is. What did I have for breakfast? I had a cup of coffee. I eat one meal a day, it starts at 4 o'clock, ends about 11. <laughs> which I know is unhealthy, don't give me a... I know. I know I shouldn't do that, but nothing appeals to me in the morning. You know, it just doesn't happen. I have to be up, and then it gets around lunch, and it's like, yeah, but I don't really want to have breakfast now, it's lunch, and I don't want lunch either. I'll just eat a giant dinner and then have nine beers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because I ate 12 sausages and 9 pancakes. But if I don't, like, I'm perfectly fine right now. I, if there was a guy selling like really good little Chinese student buns, I, I'd be open to say. Anyway. Sorry, thinking back to graduate school. So knowing the capital of Vietnam, knowing how to ride a bike, these are two separate things. Knowing what you have for breakfast, but knowing what breakfast is are two separate things as well. These are all different kinds of memory, actually. Well, knowing what breakfast is, knowing what the capital of Vietnam is, are both what we would call semantic memory. They're facts about the world. But that's procedural memory, knowing how to ride a bike. Knowing what I have for breakfast, it's a cup of coffee. That's, uh, that's episodic memory. That's about me. So there's different forms. And there's all kinds of other stuff, too. I'm just giving examples here. So how do we do this? Um, there are some general rules we can talk about. And you can keep these in mind throughout the course. Um, first of all, there's a forgetting curve. This was discovered by Ebbinghaus, like so many things. And the forgetting curve basically just shows decay of memory. And it looks like this. Okay, so this is time. And this is, uh, well, I'm just going to call it memory, but it could be percent correct or whatever. And it looks like this. You forget the most quickly, and then less and less and less, and it has to tell us. 
tends to be for episodic things. Tends to be. Not all memory shows that kind of frequency. Some memory shows hardly any frequency. The power law of practice <coughs> says that practice effects on memory, well, they just look the opposite of this. As we practice, we get better and better, but it's a power function, and it, it's an exponential, and it has Question surprise. You, you, get the, you get the most benefit from practice early on. You can't know something more than knowing it perfectly. That's why it has to asymptote. Okay? Yet yeah, even coding specificity says that this is something that was come up with. Uh, Tolving, probably the first guy to talk about coding specificity, along with Craig, guys like this. Um, they talked about the notion that if something is encoded in a certain situation or a certain way, it's going to be remembered better in that situation or in that manner. So, for example, if I'm having you, well, let's, let's think about the alphabet. Think you learn the alphabet when you're a kid. When you learn the alphabet as a kid, you first start out by learning it as a song. And for a long time, you remember it using that song. You don't remember it in order. And in fact, if I ask you today what letter comes three after L, you go, I just need J's going L, M, L. It's O. Because you learned the alphabet in order. Right? Most people don't know what's four letters before R. I don't know. I have to A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, O, J, K, L, N, O, P, Q, R, O, P, Q, R, N. It takes a long time. I know, by the way, I know my alphabet. Just to make that clear, that's part of the PhD world, they ask me to do the alphabet. <laughs> Make sure you know your alphabet. You can do. You, you can tie your shoes and count by twos. It's like being Frank. <laughs> Very few of you got that joke, but I'm glad a few of you did. I appreciate that. So that's why you say that if you study and you have, like, if you're drinking a coffee or something, that you should have a coffee yeah. when you are writing your. Yeah, I mean, and that's even more. That's partly of coding specificity. That's also. Uh, a retrieval cue, but it does fit in with that totally. Um, you remember things in certain classes that you don't remember from other classes, and it would be totally useful. Right? One of the neat things that happens as you go through university is you start to realize that there's overlap between everything. And it doesn't matter what the discipline is, you know, everybody at some point talks about certain people, certain philosophers. Like you might have heard, you've heard me talk about John Locke in some classes, you've heard other people talk. If you've taken uh, philosophy, you've heard about John Locke, you've heard about John Locke in, um, I would imagine, in, in, uh, in history, just in general. Uh, and, and sometimes it doesn't, you don't even think it's the same guy, and eventually it kind of comes together, right? But it's interesting that we tend to remember things in the context and in the Partly due to the context, partly due to the content. Let's put it that way. 
Okay. Um, so we have to keep these things in mind when we're doing experiments. Uh, free recall is a pretty common technique. This is where I would say to you, recall the list of words. Okay? Or the pictures or whatever I'm having, having you remember, I'm asking you just to recall it for me. We can also use recognition. It's a perfectly valid technique. And in fact, you will see that in tests in school, we use both free recall and recognition, don't we? Free recall is having you define a term or even fill in the blank to be free recall. Um, recognition is, well, multiple choices recognition, or you know, connect the two rows of things, or label this diagram. We could use sentence verification. <coughs> is this something I said? <coughs> And that can be used in two ways. You can say, is this something I said? And the nice thing is there, very rarely do people get those right. They remember the gist. They don't remember the actual words that were said in the exact order. It's pretty rare. I could also try something, if I was looking at how your memory for like grammar worked, I could say, is that a sentence? Okay. That's kind of cool, too. So we can look at. Is this something that, this is a grammatical sense. So I can look at how you represent grammar. That's kind of cool. And that's something Gloria talked more about in the cognition or the language class. A common technique is priming. And this is something I talked about the other day, where I talked about giving you a word fragment. And then you fill in the blanks. Right? When you fill in the blanks, you have been priming. So we can do that with word fragments, we can do it with word stems, it's called stem completion. So you remember the, the, the item was coffee, and you do a word fragment, but I can also give you this, and then you fill in the blank. That's a nice one there, because that can be coffer, that can be coffin. Right? Well, that's, you know, it's more likely going to be coffee if you've seen the word coffee. So it's called priming thing. These are all different techniques that we can use to study memory. Um, there are almost always practice effects. We talked about how a lot of practice, obviously. Uh, we have to keep them in mind. Uh, usually, we take them, use them to our advantage. Um, we can use imaging techniques. There's still some debate in the literature about the do we actually code or encode, rather, images of items. So if I was to give you a list of words, and there are words like tree, and chair, and clock, those words are a lot easier, easier to remember than words like justice, freedom, and democracy. It's hard to imagine what justice looks like, but chair is easy. It's hard to imagine what freedom looks like. A clock is easy. And there was a, there's, there has been, over the years, a huge theoretical argument between two uh, great Canadian psychologists, actually. Um, Al Pavio, who you'll hear me talk about in class, 
and uh, Zenon Collision. Uh, both at Western, both retired today. Uh, also, if the office is across the hall, we uh, And they argued in the literature for years. And I remember um, when I was in fourth year, I was, I don't know, I think the vice president of the student psychology club or something. And as a joke, we asked the two of them to settle it once and for all at a pub night by arm wrestling. And uh, Al Pavio's like, yeah, I'll do it. And Zenon Pollution said, no. And we said, why not? He said, have you ever actually looked it out? You know he was Mr. Ontario Bodybuilder for 1959? And then, oh, he's a big guy, isn't he? He said, no, he killed me. There's no way. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm putting this all in line. So is it the case that imaging is important? It can be. Does it help? Yes. Is it something we do automatically? Uh, that's a whole other question. We look at errors, and I think I talked about this the other day, right? About uh, how we we can look at mistakes people make. And mistakes can be more can be as revealing. Yeah, uh, mistakes can be as revealing as correct answers. Right. Questions? Explain that one again. Just, we just look at errors. Like so, if you make if I give you a list of words and one of the words is president, but you don't recall president or re recognize but you recognize resident as the right answer. You're recoding it acoustically, the way it sounds. If you recognize the word king rather than president, you're, you're recoding it probably with its meaning semantically because they're high-level people, right? So we can look at the errors. The errors can tell us as much or more sometimes than the uh, correct answers do. It's the same thing that happens, in fact, with multiple-choice test. When we look at mistakes students make, a lot of times you can look and say, oh, I see what people are thinking here. Uh, if, if you, whenever you give multiple-choice tests, one of the things you often do is you see, uh, did a lot of people get one of these wrong? And if a lot of people did, what answer did they give to the wrong answer? And I know when I when I put intro, and I'll, I'll go over tests with students. I can tell by their looking at their errors why they're making mistakes, right? Unless they're getting twenty five percent just for alternatives, and they're just guessing. But if they're doing it because if they're making a certain kind of error, I can say, oh, I see what happened here. You thought this was like this. But it's like that. So the analysis of errors can be very useful. In a very general sense, we can talk about a few different models of memory that are useful. <coughs> um, and we'll talk about this stuff throughout the course. We will have a class on models of memory, but I want to introduce some of this stuff. This is the classic Atkinson and Shifford model. This is the one that you're taught in intro. This is the one that still permeates the literature. It's the world's way more complicated than this, but this is a nice general place to start. It's kind of like when you, first time you learned about atoms and you found out that there was a nucleus and there were electrons rotating around it like planets around the sun, and then eventually you're told it's not really even close to that simple, but that is a decent model. That's kind of like this. So we have the sensor register, according to Atkinson and Shepard, and this is raw, unprocessed information and it lasts a very short period of time, and you would have learned about this intro, right? About the idea that we have the icon. Stuff that lasts like 300 milliseconds, 400 milliseconds, and it's gone. And then we have what's called short-term memory. It has a, this has a limited capacity, by the way. This is a limited capacity. This is what we're thinking of now. We would call this, it, it's, it's in our consciousness, basically. And then we have long-term memory. And long-term memory is everything else. The, 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 the 
Capacity is essentially limitless. It can't be, because it is a physiological system, and at some point there must, by definition, be a limit. But I think you would have to live forever, or a very long time, to fill it. And stuff comes out of long term into short term. Stuff goes from short term into long term. Sometimes stuff goes from central register right into long term memory. This may explain deja vu, actually. It may. That's, it's a hard thing to study. So you actually think you've been here before, but actually, you, yeah, you were 300 milliseconds ago. <laughs> and it just feels like you just, well, I've seen this before. Yeah, you have. Just been there. That's one possible explanation. It's a tough thing to study in the lab. It's tough to get people to have a deja vu in Sorry, in a controlled um, experimental setting. Very hard to do. So would that be like flashball memory? The flashball memories are more like they're super detailed. Uh, they tend to be about shared cultural experiences or big events in your life. And they tend to be horribly inaccurate. Um, they get the generate just right. They get the just right. And we'll talk about flashball memories, but I mean, my flashball memory of the, of the goal in 1972, parts of it are completely right, because I know I went to that elementary school. I know we watched the game on great big TVs, they wheeled into the gym, which you may have seen that Coca Cola ad for uh, a couple years ago during the Olympics. That's what it was like. We all got down to the gym and watched the games. Um, that was a real thing. And an amazing shared moment. On the other hand, my friend Maria wasn't there. <laughs> you know, so flashball memories are interesting that way. You know, it's like you might ask when your grandparents were when they were in County was shot or during the moon landing, and they'll tell you that they'll tell you things that can't be right. Um, the nice thing is nowadays we know how many people, for example, now we know how many people watch something something live because we have a really good television rating system there. So we know how many people watched the 1986 Spatial Challenger explosion live, because we have data. Most people couldn't have it. was at 2 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time. Yet most people say, I saw a lot. Oh, really? You took a break to watch a yawner of a space shuttle launch? They used to literally happen every two weeks back in the 80s until, you know, when it exploded. And they said, we should probably go do something about these old seals. <laughs> One just blew up. I, it, was a, it was a mundane event. Going up in space used to be no, into the 80s, it got to be no big deal. So, flashbulb memories are interesting. They are in long term, but because there's so much sort of the shared cultural part of it, typically, or it's a big event in your life, so family know about it, etc., you've heard so many stories about it, you can fabulate, you put in other stuff that couldn't have been there. But it feels like it was there. It feels like memory. And it really isn't. Or it's memory, just not correct memory. What I was getting at the was that what that dotted line was. I'm sorry, say again? That dotted line was Yeah, that's just like stuff going from sensory straight to long straight to long term, that might explain deja vu. It might, but who knows? Nothing. Um neural networks, something we'll talk about, they have separate processes or nodes. Um, this is like the idea of knowing what a bird is, and it has characteristics. So it's bird, feathers, flies, beak, uh, animal, egg, that kind of thing. Those things all go together. 
And it's usually for, say, recognizing objects, recognizing word meanings. So that kind of thing tends to be semantic memory. Okay? We can also recognize things like lines to letters to words to concepts. So a line, we have, we know that in our brain we have feature detectors that detect line orientations. That's, we, that's a given. That's, that we know that's in there. And they would then, now this doesn't have to be a, a synapse doing this, or sorry, a single neuron. This can be a pattern of activation. But if we have a node, so again, a neural network doesn't have to mean individual cells. Okay? But if we have something that recognizes this, and one that recognizes this, and one that recognizes that, and we did, by the way, we know we have those. And they all connect to something that recognizes that, the letter A. Okay? Now we're going to have all these detectors for lines that detect all the different parts of a letter. And now we've got someone, um, we detect a whole bunch of other letters. So this together with this and this. And we get a cat. That's the cat detector. Now, the thing is, cat, that's the word, but then it's got on it, you know, like, fur, and it purrs. And let's see, what else? Uh, it's an animal. And then you get further away. And here you've got a lion. Because there's going to be a connection that way. In fact, if I had to read the word cat, you'll read the word lion a little more quickly. It's so small. It's significant and real, but it's such a small difference that you don't even notice it. But you'll recognize, after you see a picture of a cat, you'll recognize a lion a little more quickly than you recognize a fox. It's small. It's on the order of, you know, maybe 100 milliseconds. It's not anything that matters in life. It's not like, well, I'm going into biology class and it's with champ. I better just look at plants for a while before I go, you know, have that, that test. You know, or it's a class with, with, with Imre. I better make sure I just look at Terminator YouTube videos for a while. So we go from feature detectors. And I really, that should be drawn way up there, but I ran the blackboard, so I went down there because if you want to make it hierarchical, like that, okay? So that's a neural network. The nice thing is we can model that with a computer. And there are connections in these things, many connections. That's an exceedingly simplified version thereof. And my friends that do neural networking work would probably come in here and slap me if they saw that I knew it was such a simple network. <coughs> The nice thing with neural networks is they're, uh, they can apply them. So the network can learn. I have a friend who does um, neural network stuff. He does computer programming. 
and he designs neural networks that learn traffic patterns to run traffic lights. He doesn't know anything about psychology. He's a computer scientist, but he does neural network software. So it's software that can learn, and it runs traffic systems all over North America. Stuff. Well, him and other people. It's not just him, or he wouldn't be a faculty member anymore. He'd just be sitting around in his pile of money. <laughs> Some other uh, models or distinctions. You've seen the article in CMS, episodic versus semantic. Episodic is stuff that's self-referential. Autobiographical semantic is knowledge about the world. Um, procedural versus declarative. So that's tall things. This is Larry Squire's version of it. Procedural is... Kind of like semantic, except it's not necessarily facts about the world, it's how you do stuff. How to throw a baseball. How to read. Declarative is more like episodic. See, it's declarative. I did this, I did that. A bunch of declarative sentences. Uh, in animal work, we talk about working versus reference memory. That's the memory for solving any given trial of a task versus the rules of the game. Somewhat similar, you'll see that. They also all tend to divide things into two, and the world isn't, of course, that simple. These all share some commonalities, but they're somewhat different distinctions. Oh, sorry, they're, they're, the distinctions make them different. I guess that's what I meant. Close enough. All right. Questions? Okay, with the working, mm -hmm. um, did you say. Strategies to win the game? Uh, to, to, no, strategy, not strategy, it's just the rules. So reference memory is the rules of the game. Okay. Meaning I have to peck this key to get a piece of food. Okay. Uh, so working is which key do I have to peck on this trial? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is that not strategy? Yeah, no, because it's like if, if, if the animal is shown a, uh, 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 like a red light, and then he's given a choice between a red light and a green light, he's supposed to pack red. So he's got to remember, he's got to know the rule, which is there's two possible rules, let's make it a simple rule, just match to sample, just do what I, what I just saw. And he's got to remember, was it the red one or was it the green one? Was it the red one or was it the green one? That's the working part, because that's solving this trial right now. Um, match to sample, in other words, do the same thing I just saw, that's the reference part. Yeah. Yeah, good question. All right, so conclusions about the general, not about the course, because then we'd be done and that'd be it. Um, I think memory is a diverse and exciting field. I really do. I think that it's, it's something that spans different species. It's got all kinds of different problems in it. It's a pervasive part of being a human. So I think it's pretty exciting. It's also diverse. There's all kinds of stuff we can look at. Um, it's possible to measure memory indirectly, and now, sometimes directly. We can look at activation and MRIs and things like that and get some notion of, of, of exactly what kind of thing we're talking about. Um, you know, what does the activation look like for a certain type of uh, memory? There is some evidence, for example, that false memories look a little bit different than real memories on MRI. So the neural types have a public place. I mean, I, I think that it's important that people who come to neuroscience, I wouldn't say don't do it, um, 
But the psychologists, the hardcore experimental psychologists are still necessary because someone has to design the behavioral part of this. Will this all eventually merge together with cognitive neuroscience? Yeah, I have no doubt about that. I think it'll all become one big field, right? Why not? But that doesn't mean that we still don't need to understand mechanism at the psychological level rather than, say, the cellular level. You need all these different levels of explanation to understand something. The same way that you know, molecular genetics hasn't made zoology uh, extinct. Questions about that? OK, so we can move on and talk about history. If my computer ever comes back. Here you go. History has, you know, Roman soldiers and airplanes. So, not at the same time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is at the same time, just to let you know. We're taking a history course about ancient warfare. And, you know. Well, how did the Greeks know the per- how did the Greeks know the Persians were coming? Because they didn't have spy satellites, you moron. Yeah. World's changed a bit. Alright. No, like by a century in the blue. That's weird. Um Okay, good. That's weird. I don't even know if that's a century. <laughs> what am I supposed to say? Yeah. All right. It's all messed up. <laughs> that's not even, what's, what letter is that? That looks like it's in Norwegian or something, right? It's like all with a line through it. Um, well, I know what it's supposed to say, because the funny thing is the, the uh, here it's showing me what it's supposed to say. Um, in the 19th century, we were talking, the world in general was changing a great deal. Um, so you've got the 1700s where the intellectual, 1600, 1800s, early 1800s, the sort of enlightenment's happening. People are, the world's changing drastically quickly. You know, like, we're learning all kinds of stuff really quickly. But for that time, for today, it would seem like a snail's pace. But for, for then, uh, you know, the world was changing. Industrial Revolution, right? Uh, you get Darwin coming in with the origin of species. You get basically, this is sort of a big thing, but among intellectuals, the average Joe isn't affecting at all until, you know, steam engines are invented and factories start to happen and everyone moves to cities and then they have to work on Christmas and then, then, then you know, the, 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 Bob Cratchit has to work, and then Tiny Tim has got a little crutch. <laughs> and then eventually everything's fine, he opens the window and goes, Yo, that boy, what day is it? <laughs> Which, by the way, I do every Christmas, much to the chagrin of my family. I just open the door and go, What day is it? <laughs> now and then there's a person there, they look at me, and I go, Sort of thing I do, so. But that's a huge change, right? That's a huge change. And this is happening in. The sciences too, so it's sort of a fact, 
the general public, but it's also starting to affect, and it's has already been affecting sort of intellectuals, right? People in universities. So while the word psychology doesn't show up very often, people are starting to think about thinking, as Gletman said in his great um, intro psych text. So that's in the 19th century. Um, Wundt comes along, or as it says here, Wilhelm Wundt, also known as Wilhelm Wundt, in Leipzig in 1879. And he's a freshly minted PhD in philosophy. And he's interested in philosophy of mind. How's your, how's your mind going? And he sees all these scientific advances, and he says, you know what? You know what I could do? Instead of studying how the mind works by sitting here and guessing, I could run experiments. Except he said all that to himself in German. Because, you know, he was German. So Wundt is sitting there thinking about this, and he, he starts studying... He's in fact, he starts by doing perception and sensation, which is, well, he's going to start somewhere, and he has to the basics. How does the external get internalized? And he really does stuff like um, just noticeable differences, things like that. Stuff you've heard about perception and sensation, even an intro, uh, with these what are called brass instruments. It's called brass instrument psychology. Um, so he opens his lab, he starts studying, and uh, if you're ever actually at, at the University of Toronto, um, go up on the, I think it's the fifth floor of Sydney Smith Hall, and one of the first psychology labs in the world was actually at the University of Toronto. And you can see the old instruments that James Mark Baldwin, who was a, who did his PhD with? I think with G. Stanley Hall. And he's, um, all his stuff is there. And, or with Kitchener, anyway, one of those guys. And all his instruments are there, including like these great big brass spheres that were weights, and you would hold them in your hand and say which one is heavier. And they're actually there, and it's very cool, because they're just there in like a little kind of museum in the psych department of U of T, which is really kind of awesome. Uh, so if you get a chance, take a look at that, if you're in Toronto at some point. But, um, so he wasn't really studying them. He was studying, he started experimental psychology, so if anybody ever tells you Freud is the founder of psychology, after you point at them and laugh, tell them no, it was not. It was Wilhelm Wundt. Um, so he was doing sensation and perception. He was not doing memory, per se. Though he certainly um, wasn't like he wasn't interested in memory. But he thought, I should start with the very basics. And again, that's in blue. I don't know what that is. So let's just... That is really weird. Yeah. Elemental processes, that was what he was studying. Which, where do we have to start? We have to start with the very basics, right? Okay, this is going to work? Yes. I don't know why that happened. So, Ebbinghaus was reading at the time about what some people were saying about psychology. He was reading Wundt's work, and he was also reading things by, and those of you who took learning know about Thomas Brown, his Rules of Association. Uh, Brown was a Scottish philosopher who, who wrote down all these rules that, in fact, frankly, were almost all right about how learning works. He was amazing. I don't want to go too much into it, but you know, he said things like, we forget things over time. Uh, the more attention you pay, the better you do. Like, it was stuff that we all now know to be true. And Ebbinghaus saw this. He thought, we got to test this. And there's this new thing called psychology. I'll put them together, and I'll develop, I'll start experimental psychology as far as cognition goes in memory. So if what does this, which is kind of cool, uh, sorry, Ebbinghaus does this. 
And there he is, Herman Ebbinghaus. I think he had a mouth. <laughs> but, um, I love the fact that you have actual photos of these guys. First of all, you know, this is with old photographic techniques. He had to sit still for like three minutes during the exposure of this, which is kind of cool. <coughs> the second thing is, you ever seen those guys at the fair that do like a beard of bees? Because <laughs> that's what he looks like. Yeah, I'll put the bees on my face now. Okay, I'll sit still take the picture. <laughs> my Herman Ebbinghaus impression. Hmm. How do you know what anything else looks like? That could be any guy that it's actually Ebbinghaus. That's what Google Image Search told me. So here's Hugh Herman Ebbinghaus. Here he comes. He's going to tell us all about, he's going to study this. First guy to study memory properly. And use not just, no, again, Thomas Graham is smart. By the way, both behaviorists, the most anti-cognitive people ever, and the cognitivists, the sort of people like cognition, they claim him as their own person. Because his techniques are so... Universal, that's bad English, so universal, uh, that they can be used in sort of a behaviorist type approach with no mental events whatsoever, and also be used in the cognitive approach, the ones that I think most of us in the room are much happier with. So it's kind of odd that both behaviorists and cognitive types like that. But he comes in and develops these great techniques for studying memory. He decides he's going to use nonsense syllables. So what he's going to do, yeah, today, by the way, when we use words, we just use words. Um, but at the time, he was doing this for experimental control, so let's give him some credit. Again, overdoing it, but today I would give you a list of words, no problem. But what Ebbinghaus did is he used nonsense syllables, uh, consonant, vowel, consonant, trigrams. So a consonant, a vowel, a consonant. And it had to have no meaning, because he thought, I want to just purely test memory, not how well I understand a word. Because it might be a common word I remember better than an uncommon word. So he could remember, he would have a word like, uh, he'd make up a trigram like, oh, I don't know, this. Assuming that isn't anything in German. It's actually the name of a, hockey, a German hockey player. Let's not worry about that. So there you go. And he made up many, many, many lists of these things. something else that doesn't sound like a word, because I mean, you know, rock, R-O-C, that's no good, because that sounds like rock. But now again, I don't know German, so I don't think Germans have any three-letter words. You know, just the words that are like that long. So he makes these up. And he studies himself. This is something we... You might think, well, that's not good science. Actually, uh, in perception and sensation, that was sort of the tradition. And in fact, it's still done today. If you're using very elemental processes, if it's, like, your memory works the same as mine does. Right? There may be quantitative differences, and maybe I can remember more, or I can remember less than you do, but we all, it all works the same no matter who we are in the room. So we have to worry about that. Um, same with perceptual systems. So unless you've got some kind of dis disability, like you wouldn't study my vision and learn anything about vision. You learn about shitty vision. <laughs> but uh, if you want to learn about real vision, you don't you know, study me, but uh, anybody else in the room, it'd be fine. So you, people often study themselves. It's not, it's not a horrible thing. 
So he studied himself, and he would learn these lists, and he would learn them to perfection. So he would go over and over and over again until he could remember them perfectly, and then he'd move on to another list. This was a fun guy. Yeah, these great parties. So, Helen, what are you working on in your psychology? Gok Pavlovich! I'm sorry, I've been trying to memorize that all day. I finally got it correct. Let me write that down. Because as we know, Germans don't speak German, they just yell with ridiculous accents. <laughs> The neat thing is he'd move on from one list to another and then he'd come back to one and he'd find that he could... And, you know, a bunch of nonsense like this, you're going to forget it and you're not, it's going to be hard to remember, but then when he started to remember it again, or learn it again, he found savings. He could relearn it more quickly than he had the first time. This is something we talk about to this day and it's a discovery that uh, he has and it's true in everything from habituation, uh, which is, you know, when a little thing with 300 neurons moves away from when you poke it, to math, to a list of words, just throwing a baseball. I took my son skating three weeks ago, and I hadn't skated probably in about five years, and I put my skates on, and for about two strides, I was a little unsure of myself, and it's like, oh yeah, it's skate. I don't know how to skate. I relearned it in about two strides, you know. He found that repetition was the key thing. And that shouldn't surprise us. Now, again, remember, he's the first guy testing this stuff. So the more he did it, the better he got. In other words, practice was important. He discovered the classic forgetting curve that I showed you. He found the importance of contiguity. In other words, the items around one item made it easier to remember that item. So if you remembered PAB, you're more likely to remember Rawl than if you didn't remember Pat. And that was something that all the people that were, Thomas Brown, for example, all these guys that were making these lists of, of, of principles of how learning and memory work, these guys were all saying that that was important. He found it, found it true. He did, however, find that reversal was detrimental. Um, so it wasn't just contiguity, but it was contingency. So... While remembering role would help you remember PAB, it doesn't help nearly as much as a gawk helping you remember PAB. Right? So, and this wasn't something that anybody saw coming. It was the, that was one of his big discoveries. And think about this. What's something that has order that we've memorized? Well, I talked about the alphabet. Alphabet forwards easy. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, L, U, X, Y, Z. Now go backwards. Z, Y, X, W. And then I have to actually start from the beginning and get all the way to W. <laughs> they might say you can count backwards. Yeah, but that's got meaning. Numbers have meaning. Letters are arbitrarily in order. There's, there's no real order. Since there's no reason those letters are in that order. They're in that order because a bunch of Etruscans a long time ago put what was basically our alphabet in that order. There's no reason for those letters to be in that order. So going backwards is hard. All right. Dave, yep. If you were doing them forwards and backwards, 
upgrades. Yep. And we're able to successfully memorize both, let's say both, like if you memorize the alphabet the right way and then backwards as well. Yeah. If you did them both successfully, would they help each other then? That's a good question. I think they'd interfere with each other. That's my guess though. Um, there's got to be stuff on that, not the alphabet per se, right, with a like list of, of ordered list items. Of words, right. Yeah, that, I'm sure that's been done. I don't know the answer to that question, though. Um, I'm guessing they interfere with each other. Okay. But that again, that's just me. I, I, yeah. I haven't read anything saying one or the other. Uh, this topic for somebody's paper it might be a little mundane, but it's kind of a neat topic, neat idea. People that are learning music, do they not? You think you're doing scales, so go like I'm thinking guitar. Right. You go up and down scales. Yeah. Learning each string helps you learn where yeah. each string is, but it doesn't teach you your um, the order. Uh, it teaches you where your strings are better, but may interfere where you are on the actual scale. Yeah, and I mean the thing is, scales do have meaning, right? So knowing how to go da, 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 uh, that has a real. This is like number. It, it has a real meaning. A higher note in the scale actually is a higher note, right? So it's, it's kind of complete, confounded there. It's hard to pull those apart. Thinking of things you learn in order, I mean, the alphabet's always my favorite because we do all learn the alphabet in order. For When you think about it, it's completely bizarre and arbitrary to get in order of the alphabet. It makes literally no sense. That's all about it. Yeah, well, we're putting alphabet in alphabet order. just fine. But, I mean, number, uh, music, even thinking about, for example, naming the provinces of the country, doing it from west to east is, is, is easier than just listing them. We've been doing that alphabetically, actually. Uh, because you can probably imagine that, right? So, yeah, scales are interesting. And music is, a, is, is also interesting because there's a different part of your brain being used when you do music than there is when you're doing just spoken word or reading, right? It's much more of a spatially loaded task. It's much more like number. Uh, it tends to be the case that musicians tend to be better at math than non-musicians. Um, they don't tend to know it because they're too busy you know, playing gigs. But there's more about auditory psychophysics than I do. <laughs> Professor Broadback never finished school, by the way. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Never finished high school. But he's, see, so I'm not better. <laughs> I'm a record producer. I want a jail award. Dan Broadback. Anyway. Get me around. He's a great guy. And a good record producer. <coughs> Finish high school. Just saying. And he's just professor he teaches music production at Fanshawe College. He's real and I I went to grad school, man. Just saying. Yeah, music's an interesting thing. I, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I see what you're saying. I play bass. I'm not a bass player, but I play bass. My brother and my dad needed a bass player. Um, so they taught me to play bass. I'm really not a bass player. I can, I can play bass. There is a difference. But knowing that as I go up the neck, the, the, the notes get higher, and as I go down, they get lower, if that makes sense to me, knowing what notes are on different strings, that's a procedural thing, I think, right? I mean... Like, what's, what's the reason, again, the reason for the tuning is, is again, pretty arbitrary, right? For the tuning of a guitar or, a, or, a, or whatever. That's, that's interesting. Music, memory and music might be a fun topic for a paper, just saying. 
Oh, we talked about interference. He found interference. He found that if he put an old, if he makes up a new list that throws PAB in as one of those trigrams in that new list, it screws him up. He starts remembering the other list. He found the magic number seven, which is the idea that seven items roughly can be held in short-term memory at any given time. He didn't write extensively on this. That didn't happen until George Miller's paper in 1959, which I'll put on the CMS when we talk about uh, short-term memory and working memory. Um, he didn't really go big on this, but he, he did write about it. He did write about it. <coughs> he figured out that chunking would happen, and Miller talked about this too. The idea that we put things together, it may be seven items, but it's not like seven letters or seven numbers. It could be seven, seven items, so it's like seven chunks. Right? It's just like how you don't remember a phone number as... 949 as 949230101, you remember 949230101, they're two separate, just, they're just two items, they're not seven items. He talked about mass versus distributed practice, he found out something you should all know from your study in your university career, which is that studying all at once doesn't work nearly as well as studying little bits at a time and taking a break, and little bits at a time and taking a break, which is what he did, he compared just studying one list all day, again, wouldn't have had a lot of free time, Versus study for a while, take a break. Study for a while, take a break. Works much better. It's not bad for a little career, right? Eh? <laughs> you know I mean, like that's all the basic things we know about memory. Wood found out. I mean, he could have just said, "Now, well, we're done. Now, let's move on." And there's a lot more to discover. But the basic principles he got, and this is something I think is pretty damn impressive, and I don't think we give enough credit to some of these old guys. Right, that we're doing this for first principles. They weren't sitting around saying, I wonder what, well, let's look at the literature and see what I should study, what these few problems are. These are guys going, there is no literature, I guess I'll invent one. And that's pretty impressive. You have to be impressed by that. Some people dispute his importance. I have read history of psychology type papers by people saying, ah, oh, he's not that big a deal. Nah, you know, anybody would have found that. I think those people were idiots. Because, I mean, somebody had to do this. That's like, you know, somebody would have come up with the web. So Tim Berners-Lee's not that important. No, not true. You've got to give credit where it's due. You know, and I'm not, this isn't that kind of credit level. Everyone gets a ribbon. No, this guy started this. This is impressive. Well, thanks for trying, Herman. <laughs> Little Herman tried to get cognitive psychology today. <laughs> William James, I've talked already about how much I just love reading James. You really ought to read some if you get a chance. I know you have a lot of free time and a lot of extra reading is something you, most of you are trying to do. Um, <laughs> But James is fun to read. He invented the term student consciousness. Um, he said that thought is a personal experience. Oh, he's right. See, that's not a huge event. But he is talking about thinking about yourself, self-referential, episodic memory, we call that today. He said thought is always changing. That's true, too. It's a dynamic process, right? 
and it's continuous. You can't stop thinking. It just doesn't happen. Like, how, you ever hear somebody say, just, just calm down, clear your mind, you can't do this. Because when you're clearing your mind, you're thinking, okay, I've got to clear my mind. Oh, you're thinking. Yeah, but some people do yoga. Oh, no, I was going to say, there are people that can certainly slow themselves down a great deal. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. But it doesn't stop. Like, if you stop thinking, you probably should just, you know, you've probably stopped everything else, too. You can stop thinking. You know? But you're not going to start again, probably. That's what I'm saying. Thought deals with objects independent of the self, right? And independent of itself. I can imagine things that don't exist. That's cool. That's something I bet other animals don't do, by the way. I can sit here and say, I wonder what it would look like if the sky was purple. Oh, yeah, it looked like that. That's easy. I don't think you got chicks sitting around as they're throwing their poop at each other and go, wait a second, what if the sky was purple? The other chick went, dude, blew my mind and threw more poop at it. We can imagine stuff that's independent of itself, independent of thought. We can imagine ourselves. We can, like, thought's a pretty amazing thing. And it's something, like I said, I don't think our, while there's certainly continuity between species, we're pretty special. Humans are pretty cool. I'm pro-human. I thought it's interested in some things, not others. I think he's talking about conscious thought here. You typically aren't paying attention to, I wonder how fast my heart is beating, unless it's starting to beat really fast and you feel it and you go, oh my god, and my left arm's going numb. I shouldn't have eaten a pound of foie gras and smoked a pack of cigarettes <laughs> 10 minutes ago, all at once, <laughs> and taken heroin and cocaine. I don't think you can think that much. <laughs> but it's pretty amazing to think that. And I've mentioned this. I think most of what's happening with your memory, in fact, I think data bears this out. They just personal experience bears this out. Most of what you're doing and it involves memory, which is just you know past learning, being permanent more or less. Most of what you're doing, you, you aren't really thinking about, it, right? But consciously. And James was talking about consciousness, right? The stream of consciousness.
is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.